This is an ABC podcast. For copyright reasons, the music has been edited. To hear the full tracks, listen to The J Files, Thursday nights on Double J. Or head to doublej.net.au and click on the track list at the bottom of each episode. Hey, it's Kaz Tran here. Welcome to The J-Files, the podcast for people who love music. Each episode is like a quick music history lesson. We pick a different artist or band, we look at some of the most important moments in their career, and we celebrate their impact on music, all in less than 30 minutes. In this episode, we're rattling the cage in our salute to Soundgarden, the Seattle Suns who made a noise far beyond their home in America's Pacific Northwest. And if any of the content in this episode brings up issues for you, you can call Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. We sort of become Pink Floyd in the studio where we use the studio to do whatever we want as opposed to being that band that kind of rehearses the songs and and then just records and chooses the best takes. We, We really kind of half come up with the album while we're in there just goofing around and and recording whatever ideas come up. Using rock, metal and punk, Soundgarden joined bands like Nirvana, Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains in making Seattle the global focus for alternative music that it was in the 90s. Soundgarden were one of the first of these grunge bands to sign a major label deal, but they'd been beavering away in relative obscurity and in various configurations well before they disrupted the mainstream. I started out as a drummer, so I was thinking more along those lines when I first started playing music, was thinking about different drummers and how great they were. When did you give the drums away? Um, after Soundgarden had been together for about a year, I was singing and playing drums at the same time, and it was a, it was hard. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I couldn't really do both very well when I was doing them at the same time, so it, we were either going to find a drummer or a singer. and. Uh, I wasn't. I didn't really care either way. I, Did you know how to play guitar at all? A little bit, but I th- I've been starting to write songs for Soundgarden. But I didn't. Even after I was singing up front without playing drums, I didn't play guitar for maybe another two years on stage. We just started writing songs where there was another guitar part that somebody had to do. It was just they're integral to the song, and that was when I started doing it. And it would be like one two songs out of a out of, out of an hour and a half show and g- gradually kind of grew more and more and more and more. Well, you've done incredibly well. Well, thanks. <laughs> yes, you heard that right. Chris Cornell's formidable presence was hidden behind a drum kit in Soundgarden's early days, as he told Richard Kingsmill in 1997. When the band was founded in 1984, Chris was pulling double duties on drums and vocals. He was backed by Indian-American guitarist Kim Thale and Japanese bassist Hiro Yamamoto. With their multi-ethnic mix, Soundgarden were known as the Asian band in Seattle's tight-knit and overwhelmingly white alt-music community. 
Possessing a powerful voice with a nearly four-octave range, Chris was freed up to focus on singing when Matt Cameron joined Soundgarden in 1986. Propelled by Matt's powerhouse drumming, things were truly firing up for the band. Their 1988 debut album, Ultra Mega OK, scored a Grammy nomination for Best Metal Performance. And their 1989 sophomore album, Louder Than Love, inched them closer to the metal mainstream, with many critics favourably comparing them to rock juggernauts like Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath. Soundgarden's source material was much broader than some of the influences they were tagged with, as Kim Thal told Richard Kingsmill in 1996. Um, I think we have respect for those bands, we like those bands, but uh, we've never, we've always been characterized as being fans of those bands, even though none of us have ever claimed to be a fan of those bands. Has that annoyed you? Yeah, a little bit. I, it, was, it all started in the U.S. because there was a, we, we sent out a press clipping that included a review that compared us said that we were a mixture of Led Zeppelin and the Butthole Surfers. And then ever since then, then uh, there were a few indie rock mags that said, oh, it sounds like Led Zeppelin. I mean, any hardcore band that played slower, they considered to be like Led Zeppelin. And so as bigger mags picked up on, on this title, they, they just kept running it into the ground. And so people assumed that we were fans of Zeppelin and Sabbath before actually you know, asking us. We've spent a number of years saying, no, none of us really grew up listening to that. A lot of us did listen to the Beatles when we were younger. You know, we, um, I know I, I, I liked the Beatles when I was younger, and then um, in my teen years I probably listened to a lot of Aerosmith and Kiss and not Zeppelin or Sabbath. I liked a lot of the American you know, heavy bands. And then eventually the punk rock thing broke, and um, we were all pretty big punk rock fans. So I think Zeppelin and Sabbath were things that we, that our older brothers listened to, and so maybe after we had been a band for three or four years and people were telling us, oh, it sounds like this or it sounds like that, then we go back and listen to the, um, the source of the comparisons. But it, by no means were they influences or were we huge fans of either of, those, either of those bands. Soundgarden settled on their lineup in 1990 when Hiro Yamamoto was replaced by Ben Shepard, whose menacing bottom end anchored Thiles' piercing psychedelic leads. A fan of the band since their early days playing underground clubs, Shepard's inclusion cemented Soundgarden's classic lineup as they began work on an album that would send them stratospheric. Released on the 8th of October 1991, Bad Motorfinger captured the sound of a band firing on all cylinders. The album distilled their hard rock and metal influences into a sound of their very own, bringing a level of focus, cohesion, and intensity, and was undeniable. Released a month and a half after Pearl Jam's 10, within weeks of Nirvana's Nevermind and Red Hot Chili Peppers' Blood Sugar Sex Magic, the stage was set for Bad Motorfinger to capture the public's imagination. It was a critical and commercial success and thrust the band into the centre of the hype that had engulfed their city. 
given that you came from Seattle, you came through at the same time when every everything else was exploding there. Have you felt that it's been hard to sort of shake that a little bit and to show people that you're a band, you're going to be around for a while, we're making good records and it's five years on? Uh, a couple years ago it was like that. It, it was just a matter of us, you know, just continuing to make records and, and that whole scene as, as a... Uh, as as news for people to talk about kind of went away and once it went away uh, some of the bands were still around making records and now we just are our band and we don't get a lot of comparisons to other Seattle bands and they don't really talk about it that much it just it, it just kind of went away eventually all by itself mm. which was fine but it, that was that was a couple of years ago sure it was just interesting because I was watching hype for the first time this morning have you seen it uh what hype the film no I haven't seen it oh you haven't seen it really I thought I thought everyone in Seattle would have seen it by now. No, I haven't seen it. I've seen I've seen parts of it. Uh, they early on when they were first making the film and asked us if we wanted to be involved. They sent us uh, reels that were pretty rough. You know, nothing like how, I'm sure how the movie has ended up. But it gave us a pretty good idea of what it is, mm. what it's like. But I I was in a theater watching another movie and and an ad for that movie came on and there's this one big this one scene where they're showing the spin magazine cover where I'm on the cover and it's like just me on this entirely huge TV screen and, or a movie screen and I just thought God I, I don't want to see that <laughs> and one more thing just Chris Cornell here from Soundgarden and you're listening to the J Files on Triple J the, the oh, program is called the J Files you don't like doing that? No, even for three hours of your music on the radio? alright big respect to Richard for working every angle to get a J Files ID from Chris Bad motor fingers, dense and dark sound. Saw Soundgarden perhaps unfairly given the reputation as a humorless bunch. When Richard Kingsmill talked to Kim, he asked if there's a lighter side to the band that the public doesn't see much. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a lighter side. I mean, if you go back to Loud and Love during that period of touring, we were we were doing um, the song Big Bottom by Spinal Tap and the song Earache My Eye by Cheech and Chong, just to kind of, you know, take a little bit of the edge off and to have fun with ourselves and our audience. And I think we ended up releasing that on, I think it's available on some bootlegs, and I think we released it on a, a live promotional-only record around that period of time. So there's always been a bit of humor, but we also are very serious. I think whatever humor we use is just to flavor and offset the, you know, the, um, the heavy and serious nature of, of the band. Are you worried at all by that image? No, I think it's just, it could be a little bit burdensome. We're all somewhat moody and thoughtful and sort of heavy temperaments. We're, we all have those kind of, you know, uh, attributes, and we all act sometimes similarly in terms of our sometimes stoic, sometimes very serious and perhaps morose that I think just offset it in order to like enjoy ourselves and we can also be big kidders and like to have fun and and like to take what the British call piss takes at, um, at ourselves and at other aspects of pop culture. song from the Bad Motor Finger Sessions that didn't make the cut was Birth Ritual. It would find a home on the soundtrack to singles. 
Cameron Crowe's 1992 rom-com set in Seattle's thriving grunge scene. Chris even had a cameo in the film and an instrumental jam called Spoon Man, he contributed, formed the foundations of the first single from the follow-up to Bad Motor Finger. Released in 1994, Super Unknown found immediate mainstream success. Shooting straight to number one on the US album chart, it netted Soundgarden two Grammys, sold millions of copies and introduced the band to a mass audience via the video for Black Hole Sun. I'm talking to Chris and Ben from Soundgarden on Triple J. I want to talk about the song Black Hole Sun, which was one of the songs which stood out the first time I heard it. Got any intentions of making that a single? It sounds like it. Um, it's possible, but it, that's that's kind of looking ahead. It may just depend on how how uh, how it's reacted to by other people, or just how we feel when it's time to come out with another single. Your opinion is being tallied as you speak. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't sort of leap out, or it didn't leap out when you put it down that that you know is, would be a huge single if you released it. Yeah, it, it definitely. I think you know a lot of a lot of people seem to react to that one. But what you got to remember is when you have an, an album with 15, 16 songs on it, that that there's a lot of songs to consider and a lot of a lot of reasons to make different choices. Black hole sun, won't you come? Wash away the rain. Black hole sun, won't you come? Won't you come? On the back of Soundgarden's gargantuan success, local heroes UMI made a connection with a Seattle band that would stand the test of time, as Tim Rogers recalls. In about 1994, we supported Soundgarden. First show was in Brisbane, and watching Soundcheck, uh, I'll never forget it. It was the loudest thing I'd ever heard. (laughs) Hearing Chris sing, being one of only 10 people in the room, and Matt Cameron is just the most magnificent drummer. Benny Shepherd, not only a great bass player, but just this prowling, menacing punk rock presence. Kim Tail, the scientist. <laughs> we became friends straight after that gig because we just went out drinking together. And very soon after, another couple of days later, then they asked us to come to the States and go on tour with them. They just really put out their hand to us. They gave us a bus because we, we said we can't afford to tour around the States with you. They gave us a flipping bus. And each night on that tour, they'd ask uh, one of us to come and spend time with them on the bus. They were really fun people to be around. They were smart really funny and really knowledgeable and passionate about music. The first time I really got Killing Joke was sitting in, in their bus and Kim playing Killing Joke records over and over. And uh, they were just like big uncles. One night um, we were driving uh, from Phoenix to Albuquerque and 
Chris asked me, hey, hey Tim, you want to stick, come on our bros? Come on, man, let's, let's party. Uh, okay. I love it when people use party as a verb, particularly when it was Chris. Anyway, uh, we had a really fun night, you know, smoking, drinking. And then I went to sleep in the back lounge. I didn't want to sleep in one of the beds, even though they offered it. Put my head down, woke up feeling pretty bleary. And Chris was just sitting on the uh, couch opposite me, you know, just a foot away. I woke up and said, oh, hey, Chris. You know, hey, Tim. Hey, Chris, what you doing? And he said, oh, I don't know. I'm just looking at you. You want a beer, Chris? Okay. And we sat and looked out the window, drinking a cold beer. 10 in the morning, just looking at America go by. All my memories of Chris were either very humorous, just very quiet and very graceful. He was a physical presence, unlike I'd seen <laughs> anywhere. He, he was beautiful and um, cut the whole bit. But he uh, had this little kind of bemused smile on his face most of the time. And he, he, he loved just being back in the bus and hanging out with friends. A couple of times we went out to clubs and, and when he had to have bodyguards and like, I know he kind of hated that. He was a very quiet talker. Yeah, from someone who emitted such power. He was very, very quiet and very graceful in this impish kind of way. Didn't need to talk, but my God, what a face. What a beautiful spirit he was. Time we went to the States, we'd uh, see uh, Kim and Ben, catch up at shows, socialise a bit. And when Matt joined Pearl Jam, any time they'd come to Australia, he and his wonderful wife would contact us and, and want to hang out. Matt Cameron is, again, just, I mean, they're all physical specimens and so charming. But he's really interested and asks questions and wants to go hiking and discovering and also really love to, <laughs> to party. And the last time the garden were out touring with the Bronx, I know they caught up with Russ and Andy. I was not in town when they were in town, which I really, really regret. But, hey, I've got beautiful, beautiful memories. No, they're, they're perennials. Just you not, won't hear a bad word about those guys. They valued friendship and contact, and they're very loved by us. Another long-standing relationship Chris Cornell enjoyed was with Eddie Vedder, a musician he'd first bonded with as part of the Seattle supergroup Temple of the Dock. When Chris's eldest daughter, Lily Cornell Silver, spoke to Tim Schill in 2020, Lily relayed one of the crazy adventures her dad had with Pearl Jam frontman at a peak period for their respective bands. He was very, very, very big into nature. Like that was he, him and I would go on on nature walks as well. Sometimes. Uh, 
in this specific instance, they went out somewhere, Ed doesn't even remember where it was, and Dad always somehow knew these spots, and they ended up climbing up this like 50-foot rock wall, uh, and as they were climbing down, got stuck, and were kind of just hanging there, and I, they, he never even told me how they eventually got down, but no one knew where they were, right. no one, they were just okay. like, well... <laughs> <laughs> this is okay. Oh no! When was this? When when would, it, would this have been? Right around after about? Super Unknown came out, I think. Oh wow! This okay. was like I think I think it was Super Unknown. So so let's celebrate by going yeah. to the middle of nowhere, climbing Which is what up they a rock did. face, I mean, they, and not they, telling they anyone. Stupid shit all the time. Uh, and there's yeah yeah it's it's but it's the best. It's the coolest thing. Ever. And yeah. I love that you know at that time they were they were you know prominent musicians, and that's they would like for fun like you know, go to the park and like prank people, you know, like that. Like, I, I love that that was kind of the Seattle, the, that was the culture. That was the culture. It wasn't big parties. Right. It was like, what can we do to, you know, fuck her up? Super fun. Super cool. <laughs> Once the heat around Super Unknown cooled, Soundgarden regrouped in Seattle. Wrestling back some control, they opted to self-produce their next record, booking a studio owned by Pearl Jam guitarist Stone Gossard to begin work on their fifth album. Hey, this is Kim File from Soundgarden, and you're listening to Triple J Radio. And this week, they're featuring our new album, Down on the Upside. Well, Kim, the first thing I wanted to ask you about this new album for Soundgarden was the pressure on you to record an album as good as Super Unknown. Was it very uh, much in your minds when you were in the studio recording this new album? No, not at all. That isn't anything for us to concern ourselves with. Um, we're concerned about writing the material that we enjoy writing and playing. Um, the record company might have an issue with, you know, how do you, with the marketing and the distribution. So they might listen and want to hear a few hits, uh, but that isn't our concern. We do what we, what we enjoy, what makes us happy, and the record company worries about the rest. Sure, but Super Unknown was just such a magnificent record. It must have been in your minds, you know, at what can we come up with now to better that? No, actually... <laughs> It wasn't. We, we know that we have a number of writers and a lot of material that we can come up with, so we, we've, we've been satisfied with every album we've made. like comparing albums? I mean, can you possibly say whether this album is better than the last one? Um, no, it's... We've, that's a tough one to do. I mean, I, what we like to, to think that the current record we're working on or have worked on is what we're most excited about. Um, I think we like all our albums to a certain degree, but we're always most satisfied with the, with the most recent album, and we always have our biggest complaints then as well. Well, gee, we could have done this differently or that differently, so... The record we're going to make is always the record that we think will be the best. Soundgarden may have worked on the assumption that the follow-up to Down on the Upside would be their best yet, but that album wouldn't arrive for another 16 years. 
Tensions within the band saw them split in 1997. Chris pivoted to a solo career and formed Audio Slave. Matt joined Pearl Jam and Kim and Ben pursued side projects. The pull of a reformation proved too great though and in January 2010, Chris Cornell took to Twitter to give the fans the news they'd been longing for. The 12-year break is over and school is back in session. Knights of the Sound Table ride again. Initially, the band was just focused on relearning their old songs and playing them live. But those rehearsals developed into a full-blown studio session. The result of that recording was 2012's King Animal, Soundgarden's sixth studio album and a rock-solid addition to their catalogue. Before Soundgarden played Soundwave in 2014, Chris Cornell jumped on the phone with Lindsay McDougall to reveal whether they had more new music in the works. Yeah, we always do. And I think that's where King Animal came from. We, we hadn't discussed necessarily whether we were going to make an album or not when we got back together. We didn't really know what we were going to do. And that just started happening. We all had ideas. And uh, it just kind of happened by proxy, by us just sort of being in a room and rehearsing for a show. Suddenly we were also writing new stuff. And so, yeah, we always have new ideas. It's very exciting. So there may, there may be uh, yet another Soundgarden album on the cards. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Chris Cornell tragically passed away in 2017 and the world has yet to hear new music from Soundgarden. While they've officially disbanded, the surviving members are in the throes of trying to finish and release the album they were working on. So perhaps somewhere in the future we may as yet get to hear new Soundgarden tracks. In the wake of her father's passing, Lily Cornell Silver initiated an interview series called Mind Wide Open, speaking with experts and public figures in music and entertainment about mental health. In the conversation she had with Tim Scheel, Lily reflected on whether she's still finding out new things about her dad through these conversations. Yeah, I mean, no, it's always it's always great to hear, you know, stories of the old days, stories of the 90s and, and um, you know, when things were just starting out for him. Um, yeah, that's been that's been a cool added bonus of this series for sure, is to you know because it's I, I launched it in his honor obviously, so to get some to get some stories and get some insight about him in that regard. I mean, it kind of feels obvious to say, but your your dad I imagine would be super proud of what you're doing with this show. Does it feel like that to you? That's definitely the hope. I think uh, you know vulnerability and, and being true to oneself is is something that he really stood by, and, and advice he gave me all the time was you know don't don't do anything with the goal of success, you know, like do it because you love to do it. And if success comes then it comes. But I think in that sense, definitely. And talking about, you know, mental health is something he talked about publicly all the time. And, and I think he would be proud of that, of making this a, a public conversation because, and it's something that affected him very deeply and, and, you know, most people he loved very deeply. So, so I think, I think so for sure. What an inspirational young woman. Just as Lily Cornell Silver continues to discover new sides of her father, Soundgarden's back catalogue continues to draw in new listeners and reward longtime fans. The sheer depth of the band's recording career, offering new discoveries and insights. The J Files is a Double J podcast. Make sure you like, follow, and share. Our producer is Sam Wicks with production support from Gab Burke and Phoebe Bennett. Theme music is by Art vs. Science. You can check out Double J anytime on the Triple J app or at doublej.net.au. 
I'm Kaz Tran. Thanks for listening. Listener.